Just as we might have our own go-to stories to share who we are, Jesus had a go-to story to tell his identity. And we know that it must have made a mark on the people that heard the story because they began sharing it too. When one of his closest disciples preached his first recorded sermon, what we read earlier, he used that same story to share Jesus' identity. And we see parts of that same story showing up everywhere as we read the New Testament. Well, what story is it that Jesus loved to, tear, to share his own identity? That his disciples learned to tell as well? I'm talking about the chapter in the Old Testament that is quoted most often in the New, outside of the Ten Commandments, Psalm 110. Our passage this morning, Psalm 110, is directly quoted in the New Testament eight times, and according to the translators of the ESV, is alluded to eight more times. It's one of the Bible's favorite passages for helping us to understand who Jesus is. The psalm written by David includes divine oracles, messages of prophecy, speaking of a, a future figure. And, and Jesus himself will cite this psalm to show that David knew its ultimate fulfillment would come with the Messiah, the one promised throughout the Old Testament to bring salvation. So if you would, please open in your Bibles with me to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. If you're visiting with us this morning... Well, welcome. My, my name is Kelton. I have the privilege of serving as one of the, the pastors here of Stafford Baptist Church. If you don't have your own Bible, you can find Psalm 110 with us on page 509. 509 of the, the Bibles provided for you in the pew racks. Psalm 110, who is David's Lord? We're going to start this morning by reading the entire psalm. And after we read it, I will lead us in a short prayer asking for God's help in our hearing and in the proclaiming of his word. So let's read God's word together, Psalm 110, starting in the superscription. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. The word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Please pray with me. Father, this morning as we come to you in your word, we pray that with unveiled faces we would behold the glory of the Lord, the Christ. Father, that as we consider the words of this psalm penned by David some 3,000 years ago, we would see the Jesus he spoke of. And Lord, by seeing him, we would be transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. 
Lord, we confess that, that this power to behold and, and become like Jesus comes from you, by your spirit. So we pray this morning, by your spirit, help us to see Jesus, to know him, and to love him. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, as short as these seven verses are, it is dense with meaning. Our, our one-sentence summary of, of our text this morning is, is this. Who is David's Lord? The coming king, now enthroned in heaven, is also priest and judge. Our main idea, the coming king, now enthroned in heaven, is also priest and judge. Psalm 110 records a conversation between the, the capital letter Lord with David's Lord. Though the psalm has some poetic images that will attempt to explain, the, the identity of David's Lord here is clear. So this psalm is given by God to help us understand the identity of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The coming king, now enthroned in heaven, is also priest and judge. Well, since Jesus and his apostles loved to use this psalm to teach his identity, we're going to do the same. We'll have four points, all answering the question, who is David's Lord? And with those questions, we'll consider what Jesus' identity means for us. So our outline this morning, brothers and sisters, who is David's Lord? First, he is God. So we wait. That in verse 1. Second, he is king. So we serve. Verses 2 and 3. Third, he is priest, so we trust, in verse 4. And finally, he is judge, so we fear, that in the final three verses. He is God, so we wait. He is king, so we serve. He is priest, so we trust. He is judge, so we fear. I pray this morning as we study this psalm, we will see more clearly who Jesus is. And in response to his clear and glorious identity, we would wait, we would serve trust and fear. So from the top, who is David's Lord? First, he is God, so we wait. First, he is God, so we wait. Verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. What we have here is an overheard conversation, if you will. David, as prophet himself, records what is like the CEO talking to another unidentified C-level executive for one of their employees to overhear and record, if you will. And who is this conversation between? Well, the Lord and my Lord. It's unfortunate that the English words are the same, but you can see there an attempt to differentiate with the first Lord in all capital letters. Whenever you see that in your Bible, it's translating the name of God, Yahweh or Jehovah. It's the name that, that God told Moses when he revealed himself at the burning bush, the great I am. What David overhears here is the speech of the infinite and eternal creator, the one and true living God. Well, who does this Lord speak to? Who is the, the lowercase Lord? Well, that word can refer to any human superior or an angel or, or sometimes even God himself. So it's not clear exactly who he speaks to. But, but notice 
that little word before the lowercase Lord. My Lord. Whoever it is, David understands this figure to be his superior. He calls him his Lord. So the next question is who? Who is it that could qualify as Lord of the King? You know, Israel had an an absolute monarchy. There was no power greater than the king. The only authority that the king was called to submit to was, of course, God himself. So to review what we've observed already, we have David, King David, overhearing Yahweh speaking to someone who is Lord, even of David, my Lord. But the only authority over David was God. So to put the pieces together, to simplify it even more, God must be speaking to God. And that's precisely the point Jesus and his apostles make when they teach from this verse to teach Jesus' identity. This first verse is quoted by Jesus, recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And, And Jesus uses it to teach that this psalm is not about David himself, but about someone else, the Christ We'll read from Matthew's account soon. But I I want to note how important this is. When, When Jesus quotes and teaches from Psalm 110, he attributes these words to David, and in Matthew and Mark particularly, to David by the Spirit. That's what this psalm claims for itself, right? There in the superscription, a psalm of David. You might have been wondering this summer, as we study through the Psalms, where these superscriptions come from. You know, your, your English, English translation has, has titles for the Psalms, maybe chapters and verse numbers, but, but all that stuff has been added later for our convenience. But the superscriptions are a part of the Bible. They're part of God's Word, given by God. You see, the interpretation of this psalm entirely hinges on the fact that David himself wrote it. These words would have a a totally different meaning if someone besides David wrote them. So now we can listen in to Jesus' argument in Matthew 22, starting in verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Well, you see, Jesus uses the verse that we read from here in Psalm 110 to stump the Pharisees. Because of the promises that had been made to their their King David, they were expecting a a son of David to come in and take the throne. It had been empty for far too long. So they knew that the Christ, the one promised to come, would be David's son. But what Jesus points out is that he is also David's Lord. Church, we believe that the Bible is a factual record of history because Jesus did. 
When he quotes from a psalm written a thousand years before his life, he affirms that it is true. Or when he talks about Jonah, he says he really did spend three nights in a fish. When he talks about Adam, he talks of God really creating him. Every time Jesus refers to the accounts that we have in the Bible, he affirms them as reliable history. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian because of some of the outlandish claims that you think the Bible makes, I want you to consider this. You can trust the reliability of the Bible because Jesus did. And you can trust what Jesus thought about the Bible because he rose from the dead. The linchpin of our trust in the Bible is Jesus' resurrection from the dead. If he climbed out of the grave, then he really is who he says he is. And if he really is who he says he is, we better believe everything he said, including what he said about the Bible. You know, there are, are many, many arguments against the truth of the Bible, But there is one irrefutable argument for it, the empty tomb. Friends, we can believe the Bible because Jesus did and because he is God. Who is David's Lord? The first answer our text gives us, he is God. That's the inescapable conclusion. Jesus pushes on the Pharisees by his questions. If David calls him Lord... King of Israel calls him Lord. Who is he? He is God. That's the irrefutable proof of this, this verse. But it's also the reality that the oracle speaks of. Here in verse 1, Yahweh speaks to this future Lord, inviting him to sit at his right hand. The right hand is the place of supreme power and authority. What kind of person would get that kind of invite from Yahweh? Well, if this verse is speaking about David's Lord, his future descendant, who is also God, when did he sit down at God's right hand? Well, that's what we read earlier from Acts chapter 2, when when Peter quotes this passage. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 32, Peter says, This Jesus God raised up, And of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. And Peter goes on. What is Peter talking about here? Peter is talking about the resurrection and ascension. Jesus took the right hand of God when he was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven. Another of the apostles in Hebrews 1.3, makes, makes this same point when he talks about Jesus is seat, sitting at the right hand of God. Hebrews 1.3, after making purification for our sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is exalted and seated at the right hand of God because of his death and resurrection. Everywhere, the apostles taught this about Jesus' identity. He is at the right hand of God. The New Testament understands that Psalm 110 verse 1 is speaking of Jesus' ascension and current reign seated at the right hand of the Father. 
And verse 1 says that he will reign alongside the Father until, until his enemies are made his footstool. Obviously, the image of footstool isn't literal. They won't be in heaven to prop up his feet. No, the, the image is of total submission, trampled underfoot. Another reference to this psalm is in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 25. For Jesus must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Church, the one who Psalm 110 verse 1 says is at the right hand of God, the Father is God the Son. The very same Christ who came to deliver us from our sins by his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. He sits at the Father's right hand until all enemies are made his, his, uh, submitted to him. And the last enemy to be defeated, in fact to be destroyed, is death. You see, death is the curse of our sin. God cursed our evil, our rebellion with the just punishment of death, but it is still a curse. And Jesus came to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. By his death, he has defeated death, and one day he will destroy it. In the new heavens and new earth, death will be no more. At the end, after the final judgment, death itself will be thrown into the lake of fire. And so, we wait. Who is David's Lord? He is God. And so, we wait. Though Christ has died and was raised and, and does sit at the right hand, death is still our enemy. The, the curse of death uh, sorry, the curse of sin, death still reigns over all people. But one day it will be destroyed. We are, are still waiting for that until of verse 1, until the last enemy is made Christ's footstool. But it is certain. It's just as certain as the coming of David's Lord and his resurrection expected here in verse 1. Remember, David wrote this a thousand years before Jesus. The wait for Christ was long. Our wait has been even longer. Now, 2,000 years since Jesus took his seat at the right hand of God. But we can wait because God's word proved true. Just as reliable as it is in reporting history, it is reliable in predicting the end of death. It is coming. So we wait. He is God, so we wait. But we don't just wait with nothing to do until his enemies are his footstool. He now reigns as king at the Father's right hand. And so as we wait, we are called to serve. Our, our second point in verses 2 and 3, who is David's Lord? He is king, so we serve. He is king, so we serve. Verses 2 and 3, once more. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Well, the oracle of verse 1, God's words to Christ are over. 
In verse 2 and 3, David, as prophet in the Spirit, now speaks about his Lord, the Christ. So to be clear, the possessive pronoun your, in verse 2, refers to what is Christ's. So verse 2 then speaks to the rule of Christ our King. What does it say first? Well, that he's, he's in Zion. The Lord sends forth from Zion. Zion is the mountain in Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, where, where David himself as king ruled. But, but Zion came to signify the place of God's dwelling with his people. After David, it would become the, the site of the temple and even came to be the, the hope of, of God's people for the future place of God's dwelling with his people. When John, in the book of Revelation, sees the the new heavens and the new earth coming down from heaven, it is also described as a great high mountain and Jerusalem coming down from heaven. So Jesus, in this psalm, is enthroned in Zion among his people in the place of God's dwelling. And from there, he exercises his dominion as king. Verse 2 describes it as, as Yahweh sending forth his scepter. A scepter is an, an ornamental staff carried by rulers as a symbol of their sovereignty. Long before David, Judah had prophesied that, sorry, Jacob prophesied that one would come from Judah who would have the scepter, the, the ruler's staff, until all peoples obey him. And that's fulfilled, of course, in part when David of the tribe of Judah becomes king. He begins a a dynasty. Well, we know that's ultimately fulfilled when another, the lion of the tribe of Judah, comes and takes the scepter. And he will rule rule until all peoples obey him. This scepter refers to his rule. is clear there in the second half of the verse. Here, David is encouraging this king, exhorting him to take up the dominion that God promised him, even over those, he says, who are at enmity with him, your enemies. Who is David's Lord? He is king. He has dominion. Brothers and sisters, Christ currently rules the church. The place of God's people is not in Zion now, but in his church, in his body, here. We, as his church, do as he commands. He is our king, whatever else the world does. And and no one is a part of his kingdom if they do not submit to him in obedience as king. And all other authorities are, are under his power, even if they oppose him. Think of it, even, even Satan is ruled by Christ. You'll remember in his earthly ministry, demons submitted to him, did what they were told. He taught of of binding the strong man in order to plunder his goods. Revelation speaks of Satan currently bound on a chain in a pit, sealed over. So, if even Satan is bound by the power of our king, What other authority is there that is not under Christ? Ephesians 1.20 is another place Jesus' apostle used the language of this psalm to describe the Christ. Paul there is speaking of the the great power that raised Christ from the dead and and says this in Ephesians 1.20, 
That power seated him at his right hand. That's the language of verse 1. In the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Jesus' seat at the right hand is above all other powers and all other names for all time. It is foolish for us to put our hope in any other power. Whether it be your power to control your life as you would have it, or any other political leader to control our society. We trust a more transcendent power, a power that is above the the rise and fall of all nations and political powers, of all cultural movements, and even the circumstances of your life. Remember what he taught? Even the hairs on your head are numbered. That doesn't mean he's counted them. It means he controls how many you have. If he controls the tiniest detail of your life, down to the hairs on your head, how much more everything else in all of history? Who is David's Lord? He is king. And so we serve. That's the imagery, in fact, of verse 3, of a people serving their king. Since Jesus rules now as king, as we wait, we serve him. Christ's people, it says in verse 3, offer themselves freely. It's the language used in the Old Testament of a free will offering, of a gift given to this king, their very selves. As one author put it, The Messiah's army needs no coercing to engage in war. They fight with loyalty and allegiance. They are a faithful, obedient, and willing group of volunteers ready to do the king's bidding. This verse, verse 3, goes on to describe the king, but but it uses some language that is hard to decipher. That same author says Psalm 110 verse 3 is one of the most difficult verses in the Old Testament at a textual level. So let's make it simple. First, in verse 3, it talks of the king's holy garments. He has glorious clothing. In fact, he is clothed in majestic holiness. Part of his allure as our king is the beauty of his holiness. Well, the final phrase there, it's, it's certainly positive. I think it means that the people of his army offer themselves at dawn, immediately ready from the womb of the morning. They are like dew. They're at, at first light. And it says youthful in vigor. The dew of the youth will be yours. Well, whatever the poetic language precisely means, it is clear from the first half of the verse that, that not all people are opposed to the king's rule. And that they serve this king gladly. And since this psalm is speaking of the time between Christ's ascension and his second coming, he is talking about you and me, saint. He is talking about all those who, by the grace of God, joyfully submit to, to, to this, this God as king. You know, the fact is, we were all born as his enemies, at enmity with God, by our natural rebellion of sin. 
But this king is granting clemency, bringing even rebels into his kingdom. He sends forth his word today, word and spirit, to change hearts so that people willingly lay down their arms and give themselves completely to him. Your people will offer themselves freely. That's what Jesus, our king, is doing this very day in churches all around the world. That's what he's doing today, here in his word, if you will hear him. This king came born not in a palace, but a stable. He was mocked by enemies that he in fact ruled, all to die the death that you deserve. On the cross he bore the wrath that you deserve for your sins. God the Father poured out his righteous indignation on Christ so that we could be made a kingdom of people willingly offering ourselves to serve this humble king. So Christian, does this verse describe you? Freely offering yourself to serve your king? Ready at the dawn to do your king's bidding? Our service to our king is not in order to earn his favor, but because he has already given his favor to us. He has transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. With such a king of, like this, how could you not serve him? You, some of you are mourning people by nature, But for the rest of us, when was the last time you jumped out of bed, even before the sun, because you were so eager for the day? Like a kid on Christmas. Maybe for a trip you had planned. That's the kind of eagerness Psalm 110 expects of Jesus' people in their service from the womb of the morning. The, The military language here is helpful. Many of you can tell us When you receive a command from an officer, you obey. It isn't a discussion. So we serve the Lord eagerly and quickly. But our service is not with weapons of the flesh, but of love and and truth. We fight for our kingdom to advance by proclaiming the message that delivers from Satan's lies, the good news of the gospel. It says that this is the day, the day of your power. His power is now in the gospel, saving sinners like like you and me. So go, tell others in this day of his power and pray for the king, for his reign to come to another heart. We also serve this king, the king who is in holy garments, by ourselves putting on a servant's garments and, and doing deeds of kindness. So I asked Stafford Baptist, who in this church can you serve in a way to eagerly serve your king, Jesus? When you serve the king's people, you serve the king. And the world can see that you're in his kingdom in the way that you eagerly serve others. What small acts of kindness can you do? Good works prepared for you in advance that you might walk in them. You know, something as simple as as a mowed lawn or a weed pulled, a card or a call, a child cared for, or a slide advanced can be given in the service of this king. 
Who is David's Lord? He is God, so we wait. He is king, so we serve. Well, third, in verse four, he is priest. The third thing that we learn of the identity of this Lord, third, he is priest, and since he is priest, we trust. Look again at verse four. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, here again, we have the Lord, the words of Yahweh speaking about the Christ, another oracle of his identity. And while Jesus doesn't quote this verse, verse 4, it gets tons of airtime in the book of Hebrews. It's one of the best ways that you can continue to meditate on Psalm 110 this week is to read through the book of Hebrews, and especially chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8. And you know, I'm, I'm thankful that the Bible there in, in chapter 5 affirms what I'm feeling. Hebrew 5.11 literally says, about this we have much to say, but we'll have to be brief. Here in verse 4, Psalm 110 says that Christ is not only king, what we've already seen, but that he is also priest. You are a priest forever. We've already said that David and the Christ come from the tribe of Judah, but Moses says nothing about priests coming from that tribe. The priests of the Old Testament came from the tribe of Levi. So if this king is also going to be priest, he must come from a different priesthood, not the priesthood of Levi. And that's what this verse is saying. He will be from the priestly order of Melchizedek. So after you read... Hebrews 5 through 8, you can also go read Genesis 14. It's the account of the patriarch Abraham chasing down some kings to rescue his nephew Lot, who'd been captured. And then he receives a blessing on his way back from a priest called Melchizedek. I think it's so surprising in a chapter filled with obscure names that one of them becomes central to the identity of Jesus here in Psalm 110 and then in Hebrews Maybe to make it easy, we'll call him Melky. He basically shows up out of nowhere. But there in, in, in Genesis 14, he's called a priest of the Most High God and is so bold as to bless the patriarch, Abraham. And certainly we know the lesser is blessed by the greater. Abraham even gives him a tithe of his spoils from his victory. And this Melky, he's also a king. And you know where he's king of? Jerusalem. Melchi doesn't show up again in the Bible until our psalm, this brief promise here in verse 4, that the coming Christ will be a priest, not as a Levite, but in the order of Melchizedek. So Hebrews 5 notes this and spends chapters showing how Christ is that priest. And at the heart of it, Hebrews argues that because the Bible never records Melchi's birth or death, it's as if he continues as priest forever. And so Jesus, in the order of Melchizedek, is a priest forever. The Old Testament figure of king and priest are joined in one person, our Savior, Jesus Christ. You are a priest forever, Psalm 110 says. Because he is priest forever, this means he can do his work as priest eternally, without end. Even after death is destroyed, he will be our priest. And a priest's job is to secure salvation for his people. You know, the, the 
primary work of a priest was to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. And because he had that work to do, you know what piece of furniture was not in the temple? A chair. There were no seats in the temple because they always had more work to do, more sacrifices to offer. But this priest, this priest has sat down because he has offered once for all the sacrifice to make purifications for sins, his own blood. When Jesus ascended to the right hand of God, he presented his own sacrifice, his own blood to the Father on our behalf. And because he is priest forever, his sacrifice secures our eternal redemption. Who is David's Lord? He is priest. And priests, saint, do the work for you. Your part is to trust. He is priest, so we trust. We trust that his sacrifice is sufficient for all our sins, past, present, and future. We trust that God has accepted his offering for sins. We trust that he now lives and continues to intercede and care for us as our high priest. And we trust that he will continue as our priest before God forever. He is priest, so we trust. You know, God spent hundreds of years in the history of the Old Testament developing the institution of priests the temple, the sacrifices, all for this great purpose. When this priest would come, we would understand what he was doing. It was all given to prepare us for Christ. You see, the only payment for sins is blood. It is life. Sins we've already considered deserve death. And the constant sacrifices, the tireless work of priests was to remind Israel of that. When the blood flowed, your sins deserve this. And in Psalm 110, David sees a day in the future when that priesthood would end because the final and ultimate eternal priest had come. His blood would flow so that we can all lose our guilty stains. And certainly, brothers and sisters, verse 4 is meant to give us confidence This is not just a a phase that he'll later regret, like me bleaching my hair blonde. Look look how clear God means to be with his purpose. Verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You know, it would be enough if God had just said that Christ would be a priest forever. He cannot lie. His word is always certain. But to give us confidence, he adds an oath, right? He has sworn and adds to the oath the fact that he will not change his mind. Christian, in this verse you have reason, he has said. Upon reason, he has sworn. Upon reason, he will not change his mind to trust that Christ is priest forever. He has come. He has died. He has rose again and has taken his seat. Trust him, church. Because one day he will get up from that seat and come again to judge the living and the dead. And all those who take shelter under the blood of this sacrifice of our priest will be saved, but he will destroy all his enemies. That's what Psalm 110 teaches us in the last verses in our fourth point. Who is David's Lord? 
He is judge, so we fear. He is judge, so we fear. In verses 5 through 7. These verses give us the final identity of Christ judge. Listen again to how these verses describe David's Lord. Notice what he will do as I read them again. Verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Here, David is looking to the far future. After this, this God, this king, this priest is seated at the right hand of the Father, he will come again, describing the final and coming victory. Jesus himself says in John 5 that the Father has given him authority to execute judgment. John 5, starting in verse 28. An hour is coming, Jesus says, when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. That day, Psalm 110 verse 5 calls the day of his wrath. It will be a great day for those who receive life, but to his enemies it will be a day of wrath, of judgment. And notice in verse 6 that, that all nations will be summoned to this judgment. Even over the whole wide earth, it says there at the end of verse 6. And even earthly authorities who, who might have power now will have no power against him. It says they will be shattered. The final verse, verse 7, seems to be a picture of his rest and victory. After executing judgment, he is refreshed at the brook and will lift his head in victory. His victory is certain in his coming judgment. You know, not only will the, the heads of all his, his enemies be shattered, but in fact the capital E enemy will be defeated and destroyed. Jesus is the snake crusher. Satan is now bound, but then he will be thrown with death into the lake of fire and destroyed. The coming king, now enthroned in heaven, is also priest and judge. He has the right and authority to usher in our eternal destiny. Only those who have now waited on him, who now have, have served him because they now trust him, will be welcomed on that day into the kingdom prepared for us from the foundation of the world. All those who die apart from Christ will depart from him into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Christ's enemies will be thrown with the devil into the place of eternal fire where the smoke goes up forever and ever. Who is David's Lord? He is judge, so we fear. He is judge, so we fear. Friends, all of history is hurtling toward that day, the day of his wrath. When Jesus gets up from his seat to take the throne to judge all peoples. The fact that he is coming as judge should give us the fear of, of reverence and awe. Just as natural as it is to be in awe at the view of a, a majestic mountain. 
Jesus' majesty as judge is far greater. So we fear. This is what we wait for, what we work toward in our service, what we, why we cling so desperately and joyfully to him in trust. He is slow to anger, but his anger is coming. I hope you see, brothers and sisters, why this is Jesus' favorite story, why it became a favorite of his disciples. In a moment, we will have a chance to look back to Christ's death and and forward to his coming as we take the Lord's Supper together. As we do, consider everyone has a part to play in this story. One day, every knee will bow to Jesus and confess that he is Lord. What is your place in that story? Has this story become the story that defines who you are? Brothers and sisters, we all are all made to find our identity in this Lord, to live with this great end in view, that the judge is coming. Today, he reigns as king. He invites us all to trust him as priests and serve him. Who is David's Lord? He is coming king, now enthroned in heaven, who is also priest and judge. Let's pray.